Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken to us. You've spoken to us most clearly in your son. And we open the scriptures in order to hear from him. So I pray that you would do that this morning. Would you help us to hear? Not just to hear, but also to taste your goodness. To taste and see, to feed on you, to drink from you, because you are our portion, our nourishment, our life. So help us now, we ask, in the powerful name of Jesus, amen. So for three weeks, to start the year off, we're going to do a series on corporate worship. So we would say all of life is worship. By corporate worship, we mean when we come together, what are we doing? Why is it important that we would come together and worship as a church? So three, three parts to this series. Today, we're just going to talk about what, what is worship. It's important to define it. And what are we doing? What are the things we do when we gather together as a church? Next week, we're going to talk about the impact that we have on each other in corporate worship. And there's a reason we're not just going into our closets with some earphones in, worshiping God, listening to a preacher on YouTube. There's a reason we're doing this together. It's important that we do it together. So we're going to talk about the impact that we have on each other in worship. And then on week three, Lord willing, Luke's going to preach about the impact that what we do in here has on the world. So what's the relationship between what goes on here on Saturday mornings and unbelievers, the outside world? We're going to talk about that. That's where we're going. That's what we're doing. And then, four weeks from now, Lord willing, we'll start a series on the Gospel of John. Now, depending on your background, your conception of what worship is might be completely different than the person who's sitting next to you. One person might think, well, when I think about worship, worship is kind of this supercharged emotional experience with God. It's a pretty unique thing. It's when me and him are connecting on this really ecstatic, emotional level. That's worship. And the person next to you might say, no, 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 that's not worship. Worship's when you go into a certain room, you bow down, you say just the right words, you sit back up, say just the right words, bow down again. Or worship's when you light a candle in that room and you kneel on that altar. That's what worship is. You do all the right stuff in the right place. It's important, before we jump into what we do in corporate worship, that we define what worship is. We don't, want to, we don't want to just say, okay, here are the things, church, that we need to do when we gather together and find out that we're actually missing worship, doing all the right things, but missing the heart of it. So I'm going to read Deuteronomy 30 here, verses 16 through 18. And just notice... If you're either turning there or just listening, notice the connection between love and worship. Deuteronomy 30, 16 through 18. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart 
turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. So at the bottom of our worship is not obedience. It's love. You can see the connection there. If you obey the Lord by loving him, He's saying, my concern for you, people of Israel, is that your hearts would turn. It's not that, you're, that I'm concerned you're not going to do the right stuff in the right way. At the bottom is I'm concerned your heart is going to turn to other gods. And if that happens, you will surely perish. Worship is about, at its core, our heart's engagement with God in trust and adoration. That's at the bottom of worship. It's our heart's engagement with the living God in trust and adoration. That's why Jesus can say in Matthew 15, 8 and 9, listen to what Jesus says. He's quoting Isaiah, but he's talking to the people of Israel and he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So if you say the right words, but your heart's not with it, it's vain. Consider that. Up to this point in the service, you could have sung every word on the screen in a perfectly beautiful voice. I know for most of us that's not possible. But let's imagine that you did. Every word perfectly, perfectly beautiful. You said amen louder than anyone else when Luke prayed. You're listening to every word in the sermon. You're even taking notes. If your heart is not engaged in love and adoration to God, Jesus is saying it's worthless. That's what vain means. It's worthless worship. It's empty. It's completely meaningless. Worship is is your soul enjoying God. That's what it is. That's the essence of worship. It's your soul enjoying who he is. It's really important that we get this. Now, I do want to kind of caveat this. Because you can enjoy God while you're grieving. You can. You can get the news that your husband is gone and enjoy God in that moment. It's not going to look like laughing. It will look like, God, you are my rock. And though I lose everything, you will not give way. You're my father. You're my keeper. So if the word enjoyment trips you up, use the word rest or embrace. It's your soul's embrace, resting in who God is. It's your enjoyment of who he is. That's what worship is, your soul enjoying God. This is really important. At its core, your worship is not giving something to God. Just think about the nature of enjoyment. When you're enjoying something, you're the beneficiary You're the one who's receiving. That's what's so amazing about enjoyment. You're receiving some pleasure from this. At its essence, you're not coming to worship God in order to give anything to him. If you think about the ancient religions, what was going on in sacrifices? 
you're feeding your God. You give him a bull, you give him a goat, you give him a sheep, maybe a dove, because that's his food. You pour out wine on the altar, oil, some grain in order to feed your God. That's what you're doing. Sometimes feeding human flesh and blood. But only in the living, true God through Jesus do we hear him say, come to me and I will be your food and I will be your drink. These sacrifices are a sign. But what I want is for you to feast on me and drink from me. That's totally different than coming to God in order to provide something that he doesn't have. You're coming to enjoy him, for your soul to feast on who he is. That's what we do when we gather for worship. Don't feel bad coming to worship because your soul is hungry. Don't feel bad. Don't think, well, that's a selfish reason to come to worship, that I would come because I need to receive something. That's the best reason to come to worship, is because you're hungry and thirsty, and your soul needs to encounter the living God and feast on him. That's why we gather. That's what we're here for. And that's the kind of God he is. Listen to this. Psalm 63, this is David talking about his worship. Amazing. Psalm 63 Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. He's talking about worship at the sanctuary. This was the tabernacle before the temple was built. And he's saying, God, I'm coming because I'm thirsty. And when I worship at the sanctuary, my soul leaves satisfied as with rich and fat foods. I mean, think about this. He's saying, I'm praising you and I'm feasting on you. Sometimes we think our adoration is we're giving God compliments that he didn't have before, and that's what makes him happy. He's, we're kind of putting on a show for God. He's sitting in his throne, and he's watching us, and it's entertainment for him. He likes it. If he likes it, he blesses you. If he doesn't, he withholds blessing. That's not what David's talking about here. David's saying, even when I'm saying, God, you're great, I praise you, his soul is feasting and enjoying God as with rich and fat foods. What's he hungry and thirsty for? God. <laughs> and that's how he describes his worship. Now, Old Testament worship was highly regulated. Highly regulated. Certain priests did certain tasks. Certain priests could go into certain rooms. You, you gave the right amount of goats, bulls, sheeps, you killed the pigeon in just the right way. You poured out the right amount of grain, oil, wine on the altar. You could kneel here. You couldn't go there. You could do things here. You washed here, but you couldn't do it over there. Highly regulated. You just spend any time reading your Old Testament, you see that. There's lots and lots of rules for how corporate worship goes on. But when Jesus shows up 
a massive change happens. That's what I want you to see. This is from the text in John 4. When Jesus shows up, something massive happens. It's easy for us to read over it and just keep moving through the Gospel of John. But something huge happens when Jesus shows up. John 4, verses 19 through 23. Jesus is speaking to a Samaritan woman. Just the two of them at a well. He's talking to her. Now, the Samaritans were kind of like a mixed breed of people. They were Israelites who brought their Israelite religion, and they mixed with other peoples of, their land, of the land, and their religions mixed. They said they worshipped Yahweh, the one true God, but they didn't really. That's what Jesus is going to tell this lady. They built their own temple, and they had their own priests and ways of doing corporate worship. And so the Jews hated the Samaritans. They each had their own temple. The Samaritans hated the Jews. And this lady wants to start an argument with Jesus about how you should do worship. Which way is right? Our way or your way? This is what she says. Verse 19. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. It's very perceptive. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And what he's about to say is revolutionary. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus is saying, you think of worship as going to that temple on that mountain or going to Jerusalem and worshiping in that temple. I tell you, you're not going to worship there, and you're not going to worship there. The Father is seeking people who will worship in spirit and in truth. Now, when Jesus says that, he's saying, the kind of worship the Father is going to accept is your spirit, your soul, through the Holy Spirit, engaged with truth and enjoying God that way. That's the worship that God will accept. But we have to understand how radical this is, what he's saying. This is the kind of stuff that would get you crucified. He's saying that temple where the Jews worshipped for a thousand years, all of the rituals they do in it, all the sacrifices they make, all of the separation and the cleanliness of the priests, done. He wipes out Old Testament regulations for worship in an instant. This is a big deal. It's a really big deal. How can he do this? How can Jesus say the building of the temple won't matter anymore? Here's how he can do it. Matthew 12, 6. Jesus says, I tell you, Something greater than the temple is here. 
You know what he's talking about? He's talking about himself. John 2, 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was talking about the temple of his body. The reason Jesus can say that building is not going to matter anymore is not because temple worship doesn't matter. It's because that building is not the temple anymore. He's saying, I'm the temple. I'm the temple. If you want to worship God, you want to know where you need to go, it's me. That's where you worship, not in that building. And you might say to yourself, okay, well, Jesus is raised from the dead. He's a person. He's not a place. If I want to go to the temple, how do I get there? How do I get to Jesus? How do I get to him if I'm going to worship at the temple? In spirit and in truth. As your soul is engaged with what's true about God and you're enjoying God through it, that's how you worship at the temple. That's how your soul feasts on who God is. It's through the truth being known and you enjoying God through it. That's what Jesus is saying. And it changes everything. Do you understand the nature of worship now? It's meditating on what is true. Crackling. It's meditating on what is true, and it's enjoying God through it. That's how you worship. It's not about sitting, standing, kneeling in just the right place. You got to get this. It's not about waving your hands at just the right time. It's not about ringing the bells at the proper hour or burning incense when it needs to be burned on that particular table. Jesus is essentially wiping out the Old Testament forms of worship which means worship is so free. It's so free. And there are people in this room who raise their hands, don't raise their hands. They do this, they do this. You can kneel, you can stand, you can sit. It's not about that. It can cross cultures. Worship can. You don't have to wear the same clothes that I do or speak English. You don't have to be in a big room, a little room, you don't have to sing the style of songs that we sing. This is amazing. The church, the gospel, worship can cross any culture. You don't have to travel from one country to another to visit that building to worship. It happens in spirit and in truth. So long, so long as worship is happening through the truth, it can happen which means that truth is at the forefront of everything we do. I mean, that should be obvious. We're preaching from this book, the Bible. We care a lot about truth. We preach it, we teach it, we sing it, we pray it. Truth has to be at the forefront. If our worship is not real unless it's in spirit and truth, we need to know the truth. We don't just get to make up happy thoughts about God and worship him through those. No, we need to know what's true and worship him that way. That's why truth is at the forefront of what we do as a church. Now, we have to ask, okay, 
because Jesus showed up and essentially wiped out outward forms of worship as a requirement, does that mean we just show up and do whatever we feel like at a worship gathering? This morning, I feel like maybe we should play tag. Be good to, and this kids do after the service, they play a game of chase. It could symbolize the fact that God chases us down. Not quite. The New Testament does say things about how we gather. It's so free, but there are things that the New Testament helps us with. So what do we do in our gatherings? As a New Testament church, what do we do? Acts 2.42 is a helpful paradigm. You know what I mean by paradigm? It just means it's not telling us everything there is to know about worship. There's more that can go on in worship than what's in Acts 2.42. But I think it is a good description of what churches ought to do. So we're going to read it, and then we're going to examine the things that this commends one at a time. Acts 2.42, the church, the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So we're going to go through these one at a time. This early church, they were devoting themselves to teaching. They were devoting themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayers. Now, this is descriptive. So just telling us what the church did. This doesn't prove every church needs to do these things. But I think it's wise, and we'll try to see that one at a time. So we gather for teaching. That's the first thing we see in Acts 2.42. And this just follows everything we've said so far. If our souls enjoying God through the truth is how we worship, then we need truth. We need it. We need to be feasting on it, meditating on it if worship's going to happen. This is what Paul says to Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 2 Timothy 4, verse 4. Now just hear the connection between the Bible, Scripture, preaching, and our being built up. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 4, 4. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So Paul's saying, Timothy, listen, here's what's going to happen. Gatherings are going to happen where people are getting teachers who tell them what they already want to hear. The problem with that is that it's not real worship. It's not real worship if it's not founded on the truth. Just remember this. It does not matter how ecstatic the experience looks or feels. If it's not founded on truth, it's not worship. That's what Jesus is saying. And Paul is saying here, you, Timothy, when others are gathering those who tell them what they want to hear already, you preach the word. This is what builds up 
the church, the word. We need truth taught to us. Here's how I think about preaching. If worship is our souls feasting on who God is through the truth, then it's not simply my job to put more knowledge in your heads so that you can take a test later. My job is to invite you to feast on God through the truth. Do you see the difference? If you go to a really nice restaurant, a really nice restaurant, I haven't been to many, I've been a couple. I'm not talking about Chili's, Chili's is up there for us, but I mean a really nice restaurant If you ask the waiter what's good on the menu, any item, they can tell you because they've tasted it. They can commend to you what's on the menu because they've enjoyed it. They've enjoyed it for themselves. They're not just giving you something they know nothing about. They don't know anything about its taste. That's how I think about preaching. God is what we feast on, and this book is like a banquet table spread out. And my job, or Luke's job, or any other preacher who's up here, our job is to say, try this. It's amazing. Have you had it? Come. Come and feast on God through this. It's incredible. My job's not to push some plate of biryani at you that I've never had before. It's to say, try this. It's amazing. That's what preachers do. And that's what you should want preachers to do. You should go to a church, not where they're just really hyper people. They got to preach the truth. But they need to preach the truth in a way that their own souls are worshiping. So you say, you know what? That guy's not just trying to cram knowledge into my head. He's tasted something and I want to taste it too. That's what should happen in our worship gatherings. We gather for teaching. It's that crucial for our worship. And we gather for fellowship. So in Acts 2.42, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. So here's Hebrews 10.24 and 25. This is a command to us. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting, now the ESV says to meet together. That's a verb. But the Greek word is eposunagogain, which means the gathering. That's a noun. Do not neglect the gathering, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the New Testament is commanding that when we get together, we're encouraging one another. You hear that? Stir one another up towards love and good deeds. That's what we do when we come together. You should come on a mission, by the way, when you come to worship. You should be thinking, who can I stir up to love and good deeds? That's part of why we're together, is to stir up others. This is different than going to a movie. Because in a movie theater, you don't want to go by yourself. I've done it. It's okay. But you'd like to have somebody else there with you. And then besides that, you're trying to block everybody out. It's you and maybe your friend and the screen, right? I don't want to hear anybody else. I don't want to see your phones. I'm doing me in the movie right now. Now, this can be deceiving because these are movie-style seats in here. But this is not a movie. It's important that the other people are in this room. 
This is not a show. It's not a performance. You watching the theater show. Us being in this room together is so valuable. That's why Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 says this. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, so what Paul is saying here is that the way all the people in this room are going to be built up is when all the people in this room are doing their part and speaking the truth in love to one another. When he says speaking the truth in love here, he's not talking about me. He's not talking about the preacher needs to speak the truth in love. I do. But he's talking about all the members. And he says that's how the body's going to build itself, which is amazing. The preacher's job is to equip the members for that, but the preacher doesn't make it happen. The members make it happen as they invest in one another and speak the truth in love. Now, singing is a part of this. I almost added in a separate point, like teaching, fellowship, singing, breaking bread, prayer. But we're going to see next week, singing is both fellowship and prayer. It really does matter that you're singing in a room with other people. Did you know that? It actually matters that other people can hear your voice, as scary as that might be, and that you can hear theirs. We'll spend more time on that next week. Just be aware. Interacting is important. I mean, this, is, this may be a total mind shift for you, that when you come to a Saturday morning gathering before the service, even during the service, after the service, as members of one another, our interaction with each other is how this body's going to grow. So treasure the fellowship. As we gather, we gather for fellowship. We also gather for the breaking of bread. So Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread. Breaking bread together is shorthand in the New Testament for taking the Lord's Supper. So listen to Paul. This is 1 Corinthians 11. He's talking about having the Lord's Supper. It's sometimes called communion. He's saying everyone needs to be there. Like, don't do this at your house by yourself. And if you know other people are coming, wait for them. Don't do this in a subgroup of the church. Wait till the whole church is gathered. That's really important. And he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, Breaking bread is a way to talk about having the Lord's Supper together. Acts 20, verse 7, Luke writes this. Not that Luke, the Bible's Luke. On the first day of the week, talking about Sunday, when we were gathered together, the church gathered to break bread. That's a purpose statement. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, 
Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So Paul's given a speech. He's preaching. He's teaching. It lasts a really long time. But what's amazing about this verse is it's saying the church gathered for the purpose of breaking bread. It's that important for the gathering of the church that they can say that's what they were doing. Wouldn't it be amazing if someone said, what do you do at your church? And you said, well, we get together so that we can take the Lord's Supper. That's kind of what Acts 20, verse 7 is saying. Now, I do think the New Testament would emphasize freedom here. There's freedom for the frequency with which you take the Lord's Supper. I mean, we went, how long did we go without taking it? Almost two years? Year and a half? Year? A long time. I don't think we were sinning. And even when we were in the compound, we had to, because of regulations, we had to do it once a month. I don't think we were in sin. I think we can use wisdom for how we take the Lord's Supper together. We do think it's wise, though, for churches to take the Lord's Supper weekly. So we're going to start doing it this week. This week we're going to start, and every week afterwards, Lord willing, as long as we can, take the Lord's Supper together. Churches gather to take the Lord's Supper. All the church gathered together is important. Taking it together. We are acting out in the Lord's Supper what our souls are doing in worship. It is not a mistake that Jesus gives us bread to eat and wine to drink and says, remember me. That's not a mistake. We are acting out what's actually happening in our souls during worship. I'm feasting on you, Jesus. I'm drinking from you. Your death and resurrection is the only way my soul gets any nourishment. I don't need more movies. I need you. That's what I need. We're acting it out when we take the Lord's Supper together. What a gift. We gather to take the Lord's Supper and finally, we gather to pray. So Acts 2, the church was devoted to teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Prayer. Just think about the nature of worship. If it is our souls enjoying God, God's not just a thought. He's a being. He's three persons. And the way you enjoy a person or persons relate to them is by talking. So his word is him speaking to us, letting us know what we need to know about him and about this world. And prayer is us communicating back to him. That's the nature of worship with a person. The New Testament tells us pray without ceasing. You don't just come here to pray. I hope you don't. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Ephesians 6.18, pray at all times. So that's happening all the time, not just here. But when we come together and we say amen to one another's prayers, we're encouraging one another to engage. I, I am. I don't know about you, but when I see someone else sincerely worshiping in a worship gathering, it's Hard for me up front to really see people. I can sometimes catch it out of my periphery. If we're honest, none of us is totally engaged all the time. A lot of time my mind's wandering about announcements or other things that need to be done in the service. And then I see someone else's hand shoot up and I think, oh, I want that. 
When we say amen to each other's prayers, we're encouraging one another, yes, let's engage. And also, it unites us. It unites us together in our dependence on God. That's really different than praying by yourself. When someone else prays and you say, yeah, God, I want that too. God loves that. When we gather together, we gather together to pray. So here's what we're seeing. This is what we've seen. There's a ton of freedom in the New Testament for worship, for corporate worship. That's what Jesus is saying when he's saying, not on that mountain and not in Jerusalem, in spirit and in truth. The New Testament says almost nothing about the clothing you wear when you worship. You don't have to wear a shirt like this. You don't have to wear clothing like me. You have to wear clothing, but it doesn't have to be like this. You don't have to sing Getty songs with an acoustic guitar. You don't have to speak English. You can sit in a circle. You don't have to sit all like this. There are going to be different cultural ways of relating for one another. And this is a big deal for the Great Commission. I hope you see how big a deal this is for the Great Commission. You are not going out and telling people, obey Jesus Christ. Travel to Jerusalem and worship at the temple. You're saying, no, you can know him by faith alone. His sacrifice on the cross counts for you, and you can enjoy him in your soul wherever you are. Local churches can gather anywhere at any time because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, for those who want to see it done, should be all of us. We should all want to see more churches planted, more corporate worshiping, worship happening in all the peoples of the world. No, we are so free in our forms, so free. We just want to make sure that teaching, fellowship, singing, Lord's Supper, and prayer is happening. We want to make sure that those things are happening. And, and the reason I say this is because sometimes we think, well, that people group over there is so different from me. They're so different. I wonder what worship will look like for them. What kind of things will they come up with? That's not how it is. Forms can totally change. Clothing style, language, how long your gathering is, how long the teaching is. Do I sit? Do I stand? But the forms will be there. It won't be as though some people say, well, we don't eat together as a culture, so... We hunt during our worship gatherings. No, there will be teaching in every church, fellowship, prayer, singing, the Lord's Supper, and the forms are so free. We just want to see those things happen. Let me close this way. Actually, just one more note. This is a side note. This is actually really freeing. Some people think, oh, you're telling me I can only do those things in a worship gathering? No. Actually, there's a lot more things that happen when you read the New Testament. Giving, we do announcements here. There's no announcements in the New Testament. So all sorts of things happen in this gathering that are not prescribed by the New Testament. I think that's one reason God gives elders to churches is to help with wisdom. Say, okay, what are the principles of the word? We want teaching, fellowship, Lord's Supper, prayer, singing to be there. But what principles are guiding us as we gather together to feast on God? Here's the, here's the good thing about it. It's actually freeing. It's not restrictive. 
When you start moving away from these things in your worship gathering, it actually binds people. If I this morning said, guys, for worship, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go around. Everyone in this room, hug everyone else in the room. That's going to be our worship. We're a family. Now, some people wouldn't have any problem with that. But for some of you, it would bind your conscience in a terrible way. You may think, well, we're free. We're free to go around and hug everyone in this room. But what we're doing when we're making you do something in corporate worship that the Bible doesn't already command you to do, we may be binding your conscience in your worship and making worship harder. So that's why it's so valuable that we let these things guide us as we gather together as a church. So as we close, just know the people in this room are a gift to you. Corporate worship is a gift to you. God wants you to take time every week or regularly, as Hebrews 10 says, to gather with other people to feast on him. To feast on him. What kind of God is like our God who says, come eat and drink. You who have no money, come. It's paid for by my son. Feast on him. Drink from him through his word. What a gift it is to us. He has put us together to feast on him, and he's put us together to help one another feast on him. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to take the Lord's Supper and feast, act out what our souls are doing after we pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the kind of God who says to us, you know, the great evil of my people, Israel, was that they wouldn't drink from me the fountain of living water. That was their great evil. They tried to dig out for themselves broken cisterns, gross, muddy water to drink from. That's evil. When I all along have been a fountain of living water, Jesus, you are that fountain of living water to us. When we drink from you, we never thirst again. And Jesus, you are the bread of life. Thank you. That's who you are. You don't call us to bring all of our food to feed you. You invite us to come and worship you by feasting our souls on the only thing that satisfies. So help us now as we take the Lord's Supper to act it out that our hearts in faith would be feasting on you even as we take this bread and drink this juice. Help us now when you ask in Jesus' name. Amen.